Well, we do have some work to do together this morning. And the truth of the matter is that if we get together as a people and we do a lot of activities, we get together and we sing and we clap and we make coffee and we give offering and we sit in classrooms together and we shake hands with one another and leave. But do not give ourselves to the hearing of God's word. Then the truth of the matter is that we have been busy bodies. Not busy at work. It takes work to hear God's word. The work of listening engages not just our ears and not just the physical, our eardrums reverberating and actually processing the sound, but it engages our ears and then engages our mind to have to think about these truths. And then it digs even into the engaging of our hearts. It takes focused attention not only to comprehend and understand what God is saying, but it takes faith and willingness in our hearts to take what we have heard and actually put it into practice by God's power and help in our daily lives throughout the week. When it comes to worshiping Jesus Christ, our risen King, working hard for Jesus begins with working hard at listening to his word. If we're not busy working at this solemn activity of listening to the voice of our shepherd, we cannot be surprised when we find ourselves wandering from him. So turn with me this morning to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible with you, I would encourage you. We have one in the rack right in front of you. It's the blue one. And you can turn to page 1260. The big number on the page is the chapter, so you're looking for number 3. And then the little numbers next to the sentences, those are the verses we're going to be reading beginning in verse 6 here in just a moment. All right. So let's give ourselves to the hard work of listening to our God and Savior this morning. Let's stand together as we honor his word, beginning in verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who, walks, who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would, not, we would give you this command— if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Amen. You may be seated.
This morning, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we return to what must have been a perennial problem at the Thessalonian church, which is that of idleness. And the reason we know that is because Paul has already addressed this once in his first letter, much shorter, he said, admonish the idle. But now he gives it a much longer treatment in his second letter, particularly because he has heard specific reports, he says, of idle people at the church in Thessalonica. And quite clearly, Paul saw that idleness was actually a threat to the life of the church, and even more than that, a threat to the reputation of our Savior and King Jesus. What kind of king rules over a kingdom of idlers and busybodies? What kind of a savior rescues people into a life of utter futility and foolishness? What kind of a shepherd can't seem to keep his sheep from wandering off? Some of you may be wondering that about me this morning. And so Paul begins this section with a warning, and then he follows it with three solemn admonitions. So first, the warning. He warns about the danger, the grave danger there is for us of walking with idle people. His warning is this. Do not walk with the idle brother. Do not walk with the idle sister. And then he says... Here is how you admonish the idol. So in his first letter, he said, admonish the idol. Well, now he's going to get a lot more specific. And he gives three admonitions, three commands. First, work hard. Secondly, work willingly. And finally, work quietly. Work hard, willingly, and quietly. So Paul begins in verse 6 with his very strict warning, do not walk with the idol Brother, do not walk with the idle brother. Look at verse 6 again with me. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions that you receive from us. Now we can tell how serious Paul is about this command in the fact that he invokes the name of Jesus Christ not just here in verse 6, but again in verse 12. In the name of the Lord Jesus, he says, this is how seriously I'm speaking. Don't forget, this is not just the word of your brother Paul. This is the Lord Jesus commanding you through me. Do not walk with the idle brother. Now, it's important for us to realize a few things about this command. The first thing is this. Paul specifically commands us not to walk with the idle brother. Don't walk with the idle sister, a brother who's walking in idleness. So he's talking about someone who is claiming in their life to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet insists after patient admonishings, as Paul commands in 1 Thessalonians, be patient with them all, admonish the idle, tell them what they're doing, show them their sin, but they continue to insist in walking in idleness. He's not talking about a non-Christian here. He's talking about members of the Thessalonian church. 
members of College Street Baptist Church. Brothers and sisters who walk in idleness, Paul says, should be put far away. In other words, after being admonished and warned, they should be put out of the church. Well, what does an idle brother or sister look like? Well, Paul describes it by way of contrast at the end of verse 6. He says, well, here's what an idle brother does not do. Walks not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. We often think of idleness as simply doing nothing, right? Like a car that's idling in a parking lot or something like that. It's stationary, it's doing nothing, it's sitting around. But Paul is talking about walking in idleness, which is an activity. You're, you're doing something in this idleness, and it's this idea of disorderly living. Idleness is intentional wandering, wandering away from the traditions, Paul says, that we delivered over to you. This person is intentionally walking away from those things. A wanderer, an ambler. Idleness is the intentional Reckless living of a life unworthy of the gospel. This kind of idleness usually exhibits itself in at least two ways, and often these two things happen simultaneously. It's in disorderly or idle belief, disorderly or idle living. We can be both idle in our faith, we can be idle in our life. And Paul's command, do not walk with the idle brother, addresses both whether someone is wandering in the things they believe and in the faith, or whether they are wandering into things they shouldn't do. Do not walk with the one who wanders in his belief. Do not walk with the one who wanders in his living. This is one of the reasons why church membership is so important. We have a church covenant at our church that all the members, when they join, have to sign. A church covenant is a protection. It's a standard that helps protect you from idle living. It says these are the things that Christians do. This is what a life worthy of the gospel looks like. We're going to help one another to do these things so that we don't fall into the temptation of idle living. And then we also have a church confession of faith which protects us from wandering into idle belief. These are the things, the traditions, this is the orthodox faith that has been handed down to us, and we're going to hold one another to this standard so we don't wander off into idle belief. But why would Paul be so solemn in his command? He seems very strict. He says, keep them far away. Don't you even dare walk with them. It seems kind of unloving. It seems harsh. Well, the reason why Paul is so strict and solemn in his warning, and he even invokes the name of the Lord Jesus, is this. People who wander want company. People who wander in their living, people who wander in their faith, they want people to wander with them. The dangerous thing about those who wander is that they want company. The dangerous thing is that people who walk away from the 
supreme authority of Scripture in their life. People who amble away from the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. People who wander into cultural acceptance of things like sexual immorality. The problem is these people want other people to follow them. That's the danger. Paul's command is about protecting the flock from being led astray by someone who wants the flock to follow them astray. Maybe a wanderer will return to the flock. We pray to the Lord Jesus that he will draw those people back into the flock. But Paul says, right now, what you need to be concerned with is protecting the flock from being led astray into wandering idleness away from the Lord Jesus in false belief or false practice. Because the thing is about sheep is it doesn't take much to get the flock headed in the wrong direction. This is one of the reasons why it is wise if churches have men who are qualified to have multiple pastors because if one of those pastors starts to veer off the way, there's some other shepherds who can say, "Uh uh-uh, we ain't going that way. We're going to stay tried and true. We're not going to amble off in that direction either in false belief or false practice. Protecting the flock, that's what this is all about. Paul's command, do not walk with the idle believer, takes for granted that idleness is actually unbecoming of a follower of Jesus. That we shouldn't be this way. So if your understanding of the gospel causes you to become lazy at work, to not work hard, to be disorderly and idle, then you have not understood the gospel correctly. If your understanding of the gospel is that, you know, God doesn't really care how we live. It's all just about love and acceptance. God doesn't really care what we believe. None of these things really matter. Theological truth and and seeking to know what is right and good from God's word, proper church order, holy living, these things aren't that important. Then you haven't understood the gospel correctly because Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, brothers and sisters are not idle. This isn't who we are. God is a God of order, and to love God is to seek to be like him. Look at the universe around us. What part of this universe screams out that God is a God who loves chaos? God is the God who hovers over the faces of the deep and calls land out of the ocean. God is a God who says to the ocean, thus far and no further. God is the God who created animals to reproduce according to their kind and fruit trees bearing fruit and seed bearing fruit according to its kind. Who here has ever seen or heard of a zebra giving birth to a giraffe? Never. Never in the history of the world has that happened. Why? Because God has created an orderly universe. Zebras give birth to zebras every time. And giraffes give birth to giraffes every time. And alligators to alligators. And humans to humans. Orange trees never in the history of the world have produced grapes. Apple seeds always produce apple trees. Why? Because God is not an idle God. God is an orderly God. So just as an orderly universe serves to show forth the glory of God, how much more shall we as conscious, sentient beings, beings with a will, how shall we not then choose willingly to show forth 
that our God is not an idol God, but that he is orderly. We reflect it willingly in our lives. It's because we were wanderers, idlers. It's because we were led astray. It's because of our sin of idleness and wandering that Jesus Christ, our shepherd, had to lay down his life for the sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. This is who we were before Jesus found us. We were idle. We were wanderers. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our wandering, our idleness, is sin. Iniquity. A shepherd had to go and die on a tree for our wandering, for our idleness. The Son of God had to suffer and bleed and die under the wrath of God to save idle people like you and me. So having been saved from our wandering, how on earth could we ever imagine wandering back into idol living? We have been saved from idleness, not for idleness. And so let us work. And that is what Paul commends to us in three ways. Work hard. Work willingly. And work quietly. Number one, work hard. Look at verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you an example in ourselves, an example to imitate. So as Paul is talking about working hard, the interesting thing that first rises to the surface about working hard is that we learn how to work hard by looking at an example. We learn to work hard from someone else by watching someone else work hard, and it teaches us what it looks like to work hard. We learn to work hard by imitating a hard worker, and Paul says that's actually the very reason why we worked so hard when we were with you. It's because we knew that you would need an example of what it looks like to be a Christian who toils and labors and isn't afraid to work hard. We worked in order to give you an example in ourselves to imitate. And it shouldn't surprise us in any way. As Christians, we call ourselves disciples. We are followers by nature. That is how we learn to obey Jesus. We are those who have responded to the call of Jesus. Come, follow me. We watch Jesus, we watch the apostles, we watch other brothers and sisters who are faithful to work hard for the kingdom, and we imitate them. And the example that Paul set for the Thessalonians is the same example that the Lord Jesus set when he was on this earth. It was one of working, Paul says, with toil, labor, working hard. When the freed slave George Leal went to Jamaica to plant churches in 1783, he began his ministry and he continued as a bivocational pastor his entire life. And why? Well, the first reason is most of the members of his church were slaves themselves. 
and it didn't have two pennies to rub together. And he said, I'm not taking their money in order to support me. And so he ran his own delivery service with his sons. But do you know what the other reason was? Why he worked and he worked hard? It was to set an example to the rest of his church. These men and women need a pastor who's going to work hard and show them what it looks like to be Christians who are no longer idle, who no longer seek to avoid work, but who work hard. Here's a question, parents. We'll start with you on this one. What kind of example are your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren seeing in their home? Are they seeing in you an ambler, an idler, someone who does their best to do as little work as possible, to avoid work at all costs? Are they seeing someone who is working hard as a follower of Jesus Christ? And before maybe you excuse yourself, think about this. Uh, you, you may say to yourself, well, of course I work hard. I go to work. I work hard every day. Well, the thing is, your kids don't usually go to work with you. So you may be working hard at work. The question is, what kind of work are you doing when your kids can actually watch you? Okay, you're going and working hard for the boss man, but when you come home, are you also working just as hard at being a good father, a good mother? Are you working just as hard at your marriage? Are you working just as hard at serving your neighbor and laying down your life for your kids? It's great to go off into the workplace and work hard, but are you doing it when your children can actually watch you and see an example of what it means to work hard? We have to realize the example Paul sets doesn't really leave any exceptions. If Paul, of all people, went into Thessalonica and expected to work with labor and toil night and day, if Paul was preaching by day, making tents by night just to support his ministry, what excuse do I have to not be enduring labor and toil and work? And wasn't Paul simply following in the footsteps of Jesus? So often in the Gospels we read about how Jesus was weary and looking for a place, a quiet place, just to get some rest and some sleep. And then a whole crowd of people show up expecting him to feed them and to heal them and to teach them. And what does Jesus do? I need some time for some self-care. Mm -mm. He feeds them. He cares for them. He heals their diseases. He teaches them. Toil. And labor day and night. Jesus worked hard for us. Working hard often means laying aside your rights in order to do what is right. Work often means labor and toil. Labor and toil that you may never get to taste the fruit of. Labor and toil that will benefit other people and not you, whether it's your children, your co-workers, your employees, your students, your boss. Work that will benefit them but will create immense pressure on you and will ask you to lay aside what is rightfully yours. Paul says, I did that willingly for you. It was my, my every right to expect you to provide for me, and yet I laid that aside, and it made work harder for me. But here's the thing. If you feel like work is hard, if you feel like work is a labor and a toil, the good news is you're probably doing work the right way. <laughs> as hard as that is to hear, 
We have people all over the place, you know, doing TED Talks and Instagram influencers and social media people, and they tell us things like, just find something you really enjoy and you'll never have to go, it'll never feel like you went to a day of work in your life. And that is not the way the world works. Work is a toil. It is laborious, often. What we have to realize is that God is using work in our lives to sanctify us and to make us more like Jesus. He makes us more like Jesus through work and hard work. Because toil and labor is one of the ways God helps us not to fall in love with this world. Can you imagine if Adam and Eve got kicked out of the Garden of Eden and they went out of the garden and everything was just as fruitful as it was when they were in Eden? And the land produced fruit just like it did back in the Garden of Eden. Well, they would never want to go back. Why do we need to go back to Eden? Everything is great out here. No, God filled this world with thorns and thistles to remind us that this world is not our home. And when work is hard, we say, thank you, God, that one day Jesus is coming back to make this world new. Work hard. Secondly, Paul admonishes us to work willingly. Look with me at verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, I want you to notice it doesn't say if he does not work, he shall not eat. It says if he is not willing to work, he shall not eat. And our translations are doing a great job of communicating exactly what Paul is saying here. It's all about a willingness to work. We've got to be able to discern in ourselves and in others the difference between being unable to work, unable to get a job, and just being flat unwilling to work and not wanting to have a job. The first person who is una physically unable or mentally unable or doesn't have the job skills, that person needs help. They need training, they need guidance, they need further education, they need assistance from the people of God so that they can work and fulfill God's purpose for them. The second person who is simply unwilling to work needs to be confronted, needs to be admonished, needs to be shown the sin in their own hearts and their minds, and if they remain unrepentant, needs to be put out of the membership of the church as hard as that sounds for their own good and for the good of God's people. Work willingly. Now, in middle white class, in white middle class context, we take a verse like this and we immediately start thinking about how it applies to the world out there. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. We need to get rid of all these programs, blah, blah, blah. There's a great danger whenever you read the word of God and immediately think about how it applies to you, 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 and your sin and your sin, but not first me and my sin. We need to spend some time allowing this to settle deep into our hearts. This is a principle for God's people first before it ever applies to anything going on outside the church of God. How quickly we apply this verse to the lost, to the world, and we allow it to make us angry 
This world is full of so many idle, listless, non-working people. Well, do you realize people wonder and are idle because they're sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looks out across this crowd of amblers and wanderers and idlers. He doesn't feel angry. You know what he feels? Compassion. Because he sees them for who they are, sheep without a shepherd. Why do we work hard? Why do we willingly offer ourselves to work? Because we have a shepherd. Because we are following someone. We aren't wandering anymore. That's the difference between the people inside and outside of the church. It's not that we're so much better than them because we work hard. Oh, the shepherds found us. And we pray the shepherd will use us to find more sheep so that their lives can be transformed. They no longer wander, but willingly give themselves to the work. And this protection is, this commandment to work willingly is also a protection inside the church for those who actually have a need. We look at the book of Acts and we see how people are selling their possessions, are giving generously and sacrificially to the church, and it's being distributed to any as they have need. This command is to protect those who actually do have a need so that they will have, the church will have something to provide them with. The temptation, however, among a people of such generosity and compassion is sometimes for us to take that generosity as an excuse to fall into temptation and sin. A Christian heart is a heart that is willing to work, that wants to work, that when a Christian is out of work, they burn with a passion to have a job so that they can provide for their family, and not only that, so that they can have extra to give to those who are in need. A Christian heart knows that we were made by God to work. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? For what activity? To work it and keep it. That is what God made us to do, is to work. The Christian heart has been so radically changed so that when before he stole and took advantage and gained the system before using the means of others to feed himself, now, in fact, he does the exact opposite, wanting to work and to work hard to provide extra for himself so that he can give and provide for others. Paul illustrates this gospel transformation in Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in, in need. So the thief at one point didn't work, but in fact stole from others. Now that same thief is going to work so that he can give to others. This is what the gospel does. Hearts that are willing to work. Paul, we heard already from Acts 20, reminds us of the words of Jesus himself. It is more blessed to give than to receive. A Christian heart says, I want to give. And I'm going to work so that I can. Jesus Christ, my Savior, came to this earth and lived for 33 years. And his every deed, his every motion, his every sleepless night, his every sermon, 
his every feeding, his every miracle, his every suffering, his crucifixion, his beating, his death, and every drop of blood he shed until the moment when he said, it is finished, was a work that he entered into willingly for my sake. He gave everything and he had nothing left to give. He gave his own life, laying it down willingly for me. That's the heart, brothers and sisters, that has been put inside of us. The heart of Christ. I want to work willingly like that. Work hard. Work willingly. And finally, Paul encourages us to work quietly. Look at verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. There it is. Work quietly. He says, busy working. You should be busy working, not busy bodies. And the words that Paul uses there is busy at work and someone who is busy at trying not to work. Busy at work and someone who is busy trying to get around having to work. That's the contrast there. Avoiding work is actually a skill you can begin to cultivate at a very young age. It means doing everything you can to avoid your primary vocation, your primary responsibility, by pursuing secondary activities and hobbies. What are hobbies? Well, Teddy, we're going to talk about that in just a second. Okay, so, for instance, let's say you're under 18 in this room this morning. I would guess that your primary vocation is to be a student. That is the job, the number one responsibility that God has assigned to you in this stage of life, is to learn, and to study, and to work hard at school. So, you may really like, Teddy, to build Legos. And you may actually even work really hard at building, building Legos. But the truth of the matter is, building Legos is not your number one vocation and responsibility before God. It's to be a student and to work hard at your studies and get your homework done and your projects and your reading and all of those things. But a busy body is someone who works really hard at trying to avoid doing their chores or avoid doing their studies so that they can do other more fun stuff. That's a busy body. Someone who's really adept and skilled at not actually having to work. Who comes up with excuses or finds a way to hide from mom when they're supposed to be cleaning their room. They scoot everything under the bed real quickly. Or they pull the comforter over all the toys. You guys have never done that, have you? Right? It's getting good at working around work rather than actually just working. Adults, we do this too. Think about the things in your own life that you use as a distraction to keep you from having to work. Things you've gotten really good at that help you to avoid having to do hard work, having to do your primary vocation. And it can even be good, productive things. 
but we do them in order to avoid work. It's disorderliness. It's idleness, Paul says. As a pastor, there are a million ways I could spend my week, and I could stay busy all week and never crack my Bible open and never spend a single moment in prayer, and I could be busy all week. But I would be idle because I have a primary duty to be devoted to the Word and to prayer. That's my job. I wonder whether you have those same temptations, whether it's as a mother or as a father, as a worker, as a teacher, whatever it is, as a nurse, the things that you're doing, there are distractions, and we can find ways to use those distractions to avoid having to do work. Paul says you need to quiet those things, and you need to work quietly. Here's the thing. As we've said before, we were made to work and when somebody who doesn't work, when somebody doesn't work to provide for their own livelihood, the truth of the matter is we were made fundamentally to work. And so if they don't put their body to work earning a living, caring for their responsibilities, working quietly, that doesn't mean they don't work. It means that they just work at things that they shouldn't be doing. And so Paul creates this picture of a person in church who not only is not providing for their family, not only is becoming a drain on the congregation, but is actually at work sowing seeds of discord and disunity by going around as a busybody, stirring up strife in the church. This is why it is so essential to separate these people, once again, to separate these people from the rest of the church. If people are being idle and you allow them to continue in idleness among the people of God, you cannot be surprised when that church begins to sprout up disunity, discord, because that person is working. They're just not working to provide for themselves and take care of their responsibilities. They are working for the destruction of God's people. So College Street Baptist Church, how are we preparing our children to work quietly? Idleness is not something that magically disappears when someone turns 18 or 21. If you are raising a child to be idle, guess what? When they leave your home, they're going to continue to be idle. If a teenager has been a busybody as a teenager, guess what? When they turn 18, they're still a busybody, and they're going to continue to be one. We need to be those who silence our busy tongues and get our hands busy. Many a church member would do well to receive the advice of the famous theologian Elvis Presley, a little less conversation, a little more action. Work quietly. We need to silence those distractions. We need to remain focused at the task at hand. We need to put our phones down. We need to be present when we're supposed to be working. Paul encourages us in verse 13. Do not grow weary of doing good. It is a good thing to work. It is a good thing to eat your own bread. That's actually a good thing. Work is good. And I know that many of us go and do jobs that feel very unspiritual. <laughs> and it seems like we're not doing any of this. Is, this is... It's just work. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just work. 
But Paul shows us that fundamentally when we do good and we provide for our family and we do what we're supposed to do, working quietly, Paul says you are doing good. So I want to encourage you. I don't think there are any other pastors in here. But when you go and you work hard and you get to your bed and you lay your pillow down and you know that you have toiled and you've labored and you've laid aside your rights and you've quieted those distractions and you've been doing your responsibilities and serving your employer and teaching your students and you may feel like it's completely unspiritual. I've just been working on a factory floor all day. I've just been teaching multiplication tables all day. I've just been selling trailers all day. You need to know that what you have accomplished as you lay your head down on that pillow is righteous. Righteous. You have done good deeds that day in working hard, in working quietly. You've been obeying the command of the Lord. And that is deeply pleasing to him. If you have a job this morning and you're able to serve the Lord and, and you're able to provide for your families, you should go home and give thanks to God for giving you the ability to do good deeds day after day, wherever that may be, whether it's in a public school classroom or in a nursing home or whether it's in going home and serving your family, it's in teaching, whatever it may be. If God has given you a job where you get to work, you are filling your little corner of God's earth with good. I wonder whether you've been tempted to idleness recently. I think this is always a constant temptation for us. Kids, I wonder whether you've been tempted to idleness, tattling on your brothers and sisters for not doing th the chores mom and dad said when you know you yourself haven't actually done things the way they ought to be done. Jesus had to die for our idleness, for yours and for mine. And he can make us new. He can make us into people who are not afraid to work hard, whose hearts want to work willingly and have spirits that work quietly. But the first step is to confess the truth. Maybe this week you need to go confess to an employer. Maybe you need to go confess to a spouse. Maybe you need to go confess to your children. Kids, maybe you need to go confess to your parents how you've been idle instead of working and doing what God has for you. The good news is that Jesus has done the entire work of salvation from start to finish to forgive us of that idleness. You have to repent. You have to trust in him. If you don't belong to a church this morning, I would encourage you to consider the importance of church membership in helping us to fight the temptation toward idleness. Work hard, willingly, and quietly. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have set the supreme example in all of these ways. We know we will never live up to them, but we thank you, Lord Jesus, you've put your spirit in us to help us day by day to become more like you. I pray for my brothers and sisters here who are going to jobs tomorrow, maybe even some of them this afternoon. Lord, I pray that they would know the truth, that they would not grow weary in doing good and working in all of these ways. 
Lord Jesus, we pray if there is any idle member among us that we would not be ashamed or afraid to confront them and to call them back to the shepherd. And Lord, we pray that they would come back to the shepherd. We don't want to walk in idleness, Lord Jesus. We want to follow you. It's in your name we trust and pray. Amen.